Amen. Those are some pretty uh, powerful quotes about worship. Amen? Amen. What we are worshiping, we are becoming. Uh, It's only when men begin to worship that they begin to grow. And worshiping is expressing the same delight in God that made David dance. And and here's a quote that didn't appear on the screen. I, I like this one. Worship is a response to a relationship that we don't deserve. And remember, worship, it's, a, it, it, it's not, it's our choice. Our choice is not if we're going to worship, but rather what or who we're going to worship. And, and I want to encourage you right now just to lean into the following passages about, about worship. Psalm 95, verse 6, come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Psalm 96, 9, Worship the Lord in all his holy splendor. Let all the earth tremble before him. And here is a passage that both predicts and describes the worship that Christ would receive, written hundreds of years before he put on flesh. This is the prophet Daniel. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Understand, earthly kingdoms, they they come and they go, but God's kingdom reigns forever. God's kingdom is unshakable. And then Matthew 28, verse 9, we read this, "And, and as they went, this is the ladies leaving the tomb that they found empty, as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them. They ran to him, grasped his feet, as soon as they fell to the ground and they worshiped him. And then we read this in Revelation. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They, they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. And have their being. And listen, your being, you becoming who you were created to be, is only found in Him. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we love you, and, and God, I, I just pray that right now, Lord, you desire our worship, you want our worship. God, open our eyes uh, to all that you want to say to us today, what you've already said through song and praising you. God, right now, there are millions of angels surrounding you and praising you, falling down before you. And God, I just pray today that you find a people who long to worship you, who long to listen to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning is our final conversation in our, in our mini-series, Christmas Stocking Stuffers. And, uh, and last week, we looked at the very first Christmas song, Mary's Magnificat, right? The superhero cat, Magnificat. And in that song, Mary magnifies several of, of God's immutable, God's unchangeable qualities, in her song, she magnifies God's might for 
nothing is impossible for God. She, she magnifies God's mercy, which he delights to give and which I need every day. She magnifies the care and concern that God has for his people. God is always paying attention to us. Whatever we're going through, God knows and he cares. She magnifies the fact that, that God always keeps his promises. I understand every good and awesome promise, like our soon coming forever, God will keep his promises. And she also magnifies God's ways, how, how, how God's ways are not like our ways, how, how God often takes and uses humble and ordinary people to do extraordinary things. On Christmas Eve, we just talked about how Jesus is the gift and specifically Jesus' life and how Jesus' life actually changed everything, right? Nothing's been the same since and that Jesus is the gift that everybody needs and Jesus is a gift that keeps on giving and giving and giving. And today, the last Sunday of 2019, the last Sunday of this decade, um, we're going to focus our attention on the wise men found in Matthew chapter 2 and see what these guys can teach us about worship. Now, these guys are best known for bringing gifts to Jesus, thus setting in motion, giving gifts on Christmas. By the way, we don't know how many wise men there were. You know, we, we think three. You know, um, some scholars actually suggest that there were four wise men and that the fourth wise man, that his gift was fruitcake, and, he, and they didn't let him go on the trip. You know, fruitcake, the cake that's been re-gifted for 2,000 years. If you like fruitcake, I apologize. If you make fruitcake, I doubly apologize. Okay? And, and the way I, I, I want to just look at this and unpack it is, I want to look at their story using Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 12 as their guide. And then once we look at their story, I want us to pull out several truths that they teach us about worship. Okay, let's do this. Their story, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. He was a very cruel, a very crafty, a, a very cunning, a, a very paranoid, and a very evil and sadistic leader. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it arose, and we've come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed by what he heard, as was everyone in Jerusalem. And now right there we discover something interesting. You know, uh, the wise men show up in Jerusalem, not Bethlehem, which runs contrary to our nativity scenes, right, uh, that show them at Bethlehem with the, with the shepherds. The shepherds were there. The, the wise men showed up some time later. And my daughter, Chelsea, I was talking to her this week, and when she sets up her nativity, she always has the wise men off in the distance somewhere because they haven't got there yet. They're not with everybody in major. They're just off maybe a couple feet to the side because they haven't arrived yet. You know how far away they are, but you just know they're still on their way. Okay, so, so, so just who are these wise men? They're, they're basically the professors and the philosophers of the day. Um, uh, they came from the country that we know as Iraq. Um, they were highly educated men who were trained in medicine and history, religion, prophecy, and astronomy. Um, our modern word magistrate, you know, comes from this word magi. And since these men thought deeply about life, it makes sense that we would, we would call them wise men. They would also have been trained in astrology. Um, and, and, and back in the first century and earlier, you know, astrology was connected with mankind's search for God. You know, the ancient, which ancients would study the stars in the skies to find answers to the great questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Another important fact for us to consider is that 
Uh, these were highly influential men, and they served as advisors to kings. They weren't kings themselves, but it's not far from the truth to say that sometimes these guys were actually king makers. Now, now what was it that motivated these highly educated, influential men to make a long 1,000-mile uh, journey across the desert? Matthew tells us. You know, they come to see a baby who was born king. And I find this kind of fascinating. They, they knew a baby had been born in Judea, but they don't know where. They know he was a king, but they, they don't know his name. And, and so they show up in the capital city, which makes sense because they're looking for the one who was born king of the Jews. Now, verse 2 adds a detail that has baffled and intrigued biblical scholars and astronomers for 2,000 years. When we saw his star as it arose, and we have come to worship him. And what was the star that rose in the east? Uh, there's many theories about it. Uh, one astronomer from Rutgers University argues that it, it was an alignment of stars and planets that ancient astrologers would have recognized as significant. You see, Jupiter was considered as the planet of kings, and uh, lunar eclipse of Jupiter in the constellation, constellation uh, which was an ancient symbol of Judea, uh, would have raised expectation that somebody royal had been born. And, and, and actually, you know, you know, mathematicians have developed formulas for charting movements of stars and planets and plugged them in computer programs, and they say, hey, you know what? This actually happened, and this star probably showed up around the time of Jesus' birth. I mean, you can go on YouTube and watch something called the Star of Bethlehem and spend about, it's about an hour and 15 minutes of really interesting stuff. But that's all I'm going to say about that, except that what I think is awesome is that every time, you know, the Bible is held up to science, it does okay. <laughs> I understand. The Bible can hold its own. Uh, the Bible can hold its own against any truth, anywhere, anytime. Uh, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of God endures forever. So whatever the star was, it, it, we know two things about it. it. Number one, its purpose was to get the attention of the wise men, these guys who studied the stars and and number two, we know that God was involved in it, right? And if God wanted to get these guys' attention, he couldn't have chose a perfect way to do it, more perfect way. When we saw a star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, I know that most of the images we have of these guys, right, are three dudes riding a camel, right? You know, uh, across the desert. But listen, that cannot be further from the truth. I mean, there's no way that these educated, wealthy, influential men would make that journey across the desert by themselves. That's not how rich, wealthy people traveled in that time. And rather, they would have traveled in a very large, you could say, in a, in a grand caravan. Actually, I got a picture of their grand caravan. <laughs> uh, that's, thank you for the pity laughs. <laughs> My sense of humor is an acquired distaste. Okay, uh, okay so, so you can get rid of that. That is a 2020, by the way, uh, grand caravan. Um, and you can be sure that as this caravan, you know, strolled and went down the streets, you know, it got everybody's attention. Um, they probably had a full military escort um, and all their servants. It probably was a group of maybe 300 people. And so no wonder the whole city is stirred and all the news networks are covering it, trying to get the exclusive interview. And notice they had no trouble getting an audience with the king, right? Which speaks to the fact that these were important guys. And as it makes its way down Jerusalem, Herod, who, who at the time is more paranoid than ever, 
wants to know why they're here and why they've come. It says that Herod is deeply disturbed. You see, whenever he felt it could have been real or imaginary that his throne or power was threatened, his go-to was murder, right? He, he murdered a couple of his own sons, murdered one of his wives, murdered his mother-in-law. That was his go-to. And notice that it says that not only was, was Herod greatly disturbed, but all of Jerusalem was greatly disturbed. Now, now why was everybody disturbed? Because Herod's the king. And they know that this crazy, paranoid, insane, murderous king is about to do something crazy, and they have no idea what he's about to do. And so Herod wants to know where the threat to his throne was located. So we read in verse 4, he called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said. For this is what the prophet wrote, Micah the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. You know what I'm saying? They didn't have to Google it. It always seems like they knew, right? That they didn't have to look it up. Let, let, let us go back. It's like they knew. They already knew the answer. And listen, if we add what the scribes already knew and what the Magi saw, we can safely conclude that the signs of Jesus' coming were clear enough for anyone to hear. And here's the point. God always speaks loud enough for a willing ear to hear. Always. He's actually speaking this morning in this room. He's been speaking. And those who have a willing ear are going to hear it. The wise men heard and did something. The religious scholars knew and they did nothing. Matthew continues, Herod called for a private meeting with the wise man and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. And Matthew doesn't give us the answer of what they said when the star appeared, but just a few verses down we know that Herod sends his soldiers into Bethlehem to murder any male boy to and under. Now, why doesn't Herod go himself to Bethlehem? Remember, it's just not three dudes on a camel, right? <laughs> These are powerful, influential men who have probably their own military escort. So he, he's not going to make his move until these guys are gone. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Man. Matthew goes on. After meeting with the king, the wise men went away. And the star that they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem and went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. And so the star seems like it reappears and it guides them to this very specific place. It it stops right over the home where Jesus now, probably a two-year-old, is living. The star went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. Now, that doesn't seem like a random star, right? You know, it, it seems like this is something created by God for the specific purpose, right? That gives them the exact location. Like, like, who needs a GPS, right? Who needs Google Maps when you have God guiding you? And I love their response. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. The Greek literally reads, they rejoice with exceedingly great joy. <laughs> they rejoice with exceedingly great, with mega joy. And why were they so 
joyful. Because now they know, they saw the star, hey, our search is not in vain. And, and, and I think it's, it's worth noting that even though their goal hadn't been met yet, right, they still haven't suddenly seen Jesus yet. They still rejoice with exceedingly great joy. Why? Because the star was a sign that what they sought would be happening very soon. And I think that's how God wants you and I to feel about our future forever, right? Like, like it's not happened yet, right? We're still here, and here's not always good, and here sometimes it's difficult, right? But, but one day, one day the sky will crack open, right? And, and one day the trumpet will blast, and, and one day the archangel will shout, and one day Jesus will come, and he, he will take us to be with him, right? And, and, and he gave us a sign, right? Just like Jonah was in, in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, Jesus was in the ground, and he, and he rose again. He gave us this sign, and so, so even though it hasn't happened yet, we can still rejoice because we know that it's coming. Amen? We should, right? It's going to happen. They entered the house and saw the child with Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. I, I wonder if they were maybe an e bit disappointed. After all, he, he didn't look like a king. His home was far from a castle. He had no, he had no royal scepters hand. He commanded no armies. He gave no speeches. No decrees came from his mouth. In fact, he was just learning how to both walk and talk. To the outward eye was nothing but a peasant child born in dire poverty. But to these wise men, he looked like a king. In fact, these wise men, as far as they were concerned, Jesus possessed more royalty stumbling around in his diapers than Herod did strutting around in his fancy royal robes. And that word worship literally means it's a proskuneo, to kiss toward and to intensely adore. Oh, come let us adore him. And somehow they knew, right? I don't know how they knew. Maybe because of the legacy. I thought, I don't know if that was going to fall or not. Yeah, it fell. I mean, I, they didn't, I don't got a lot of room to work here, right? I'm just moving around, okay? I hit it. That's the fourth time I hit it. And that time it went over. All right. I guess I'm not supposed to call attention to that, right? Okay. Hey, did you see that? I didn't, what did you see? I didn't see anything. All right. Okay. What am I even talking about right now? <laughs> what was I? Seriously. Help me out. Oh, no. Something about Daniel, right? Okay. Like, I don't know how they knew who Jesus was, but, you know, Daniel had a legacy as a magi in that same land. And, and maybe they knew these words written by, by Daniel in Daniel 7, verse 14. He's, which I read earlier, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Somehow they knew. Somehow they knew that this toddler will one day rule the world. So they bowed down before him. And, and you don't, please don't miss the power and audacity of the scene, right? This is crazy. I mean, imagine if this week some some powerful leader from a great nation, maybe China or Russia or, or Great Britain, that they, they came to America and, and, and they have their caravan of black SU, SUVs with the flags waving on the side and they go down into a, a, a housing district, right? You know, um, 
subsidized housing and there's a two-year-old toddler playing in the sand and these powerful leaders, they get out of their SUVs and they bow down to that toddler playing in the sandbox, right? That's what's happening here. This is a powerful scene. And I love the contrast, right? When they met Herod, they, they have no desire to bow down and worship. But when they see Jesus, they fall on their faces. What Herod craved and demanded, Christ got without asking. And then we come to the detail, which these guys are most remembered for. Then they opened up their treasure chests and gave them gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Whenever you met a powerful leader back then, and even today, you know, it's often very appropriate that you come and you bring a gift. And, and, uh, and the gift they brought were very appropriate for the tribute to a king. They brought gold, which is one of the rarest and most expensive metals. They brought frankincense, which was used in worship in the temple. Uh, they brought myrrh, kind of a perfume made from the leaves of a rose. It was used in beauty treatments, and when it was mixed with vinegar, it became anesthetic. After a person died, myrrh was used to anoint the body and prepare it for burial. Understand, gold pointed to Jesus' majesty because he's a king. Frankincense pointed to his deity because he's God. And the myrrh pointed to his humanity because he was destined to suffer and to die. Now, did the wise men know all the implications of their gifts? I don't think so. I don't think so. But we can be sure that God arranged it so that, that, that these gifts would point to who Jesus is, that he's God, he's a sovereign king, and why he came, he came to suffer and to die. And then the goal would obviously finance their unexpected trip to Egypt that was about to happen. Then Matthew wraps up the story with these words. When it's time to leave, they return to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Okay, that's their story. What do these wise guys teach us about worship? Um, five things. I, I, I see five things that they teach us about worship. Uh, first, they teach us that worship begins with, with seeing. When they saw his star as it arose, they saw the child with his mother Mary and bowed down and worshiped him. You see, worship begins with, with seeing. You know, I find it interesting that even though that star was visible in the sky, not everybody really saw it. I don't know, maybe they weren't paying attention. You know, maybe they weren't even looking. Or maybe like us, who at times see things for so long that we no longer see them. You know, I still remember the first time I drove off I-64 after living in flat Florida for a lot of years. And I'm coming up top of Pantops, and I'm like, oh my gosh, look at those mountains. And now it's like, hey, the line of Chick-fil-A looks pretty short. Maybe I should get some fries, right? It's like, I don't even see it anymore. Worship begins with seeing. The psalmist writes, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. A few weeks ago, early in the morning, I was walking around the lake, and this doesn't really capture it, right? But... As the sun was was rising, the skies were doing some proclaiming about God's power and God's beauty and and about God's creativity and about God's joy. It's like God said, yes, morning, rise and shine. It's beautiful. Worship begins with seeing, and and that's why 
Isaiah says this in Isaiah verse 40, chapter 40, verse 26, right? Lift up your eyes and look, right? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who, who created all these? He who brings out all the starry hosts one by one, calls forth each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. He says, look up, lift up. Uh, understand, when we see things like creation, and we consider the fact that they came about simply by words that flowed from his mouth, we will stand in all of him. We will worship. Worship begins with seeing, seeing his creation. And like the wise men seeing Jesus, they saw Jesus and they worshiped him. Listen, when we see Jesus, when we see who he is and we see what he did and we see how he lived, we will worship him. Matthew 28, verse 17, Matthew writes, they're on the mountain by the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is about to go home. When they saw him, they worshiped. Worship begins with seeing. Lift up your eyes. Look. God is all around you. Question, are you even looking? Next, worship requires seeking. We saw the star and we came to worship him. It wasn't we saw the star and we sat on our porch, you know. No, we saw the star and we came. See, true worship always leads to seeking. I mean, once you see something like that, you have to get closer to it. Uh, several weeks back, I was, you know, I, I love the sky. I just got to acknowledge that, right? And I was getting in my car and I looked up. I said, oh my gosh, I got to get out of my car. I got to get a closer look. It, it, it looks like, that's not fire, by the way. It looks like fire. It's, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's incredible. That's incredible. Like my dad did that. He created that. It's amazing. It's absolutely beautiful. And I just had to get closer, right? I mean, why do people go hiking? Why, why, do, you know, why, why do we build houses on the beach for millions of dollars, right? Or rent them for thousands, right? You know, because we want to just get close to creation. It requires seeking. And here's some verses about seeking. Here's what Jeremiah said. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I'll be found by you. When you seek me, how? With what? All my heart. And, and it's not, see, it's not like God is playing hide and seek with us, Right? It's just that there's something about God that we will not find God to the degree that he wants us to find him till we want God more than we want anything else. And I love this verse in Isaiah. I would not have told the people of Israel to seek me if I could not be found. God is saying to you this morning, I want you to find me. I want you to know me. I want you to be with me. I want you to have a relationship with me. Jesus said, if you, if you seek, you will find. Next worship is grounded in Scripture. Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem and Judea, they said. For this is what the prophet wrote. And, and they said what the prophet wrote. I understand, when they got sidetracked in Jerusalem... They went to the Word of God to get direction. Yeah. Maybe some of you are sidetracked in Jerusalem right now. Let me tell you where you get direction. In the Word of God. You see, Scripture is essential to worship. It, it helps us see God more clearly. helps us to see God more accurately, to see God more fully. 
And he guides us as we seek him. Jesus said in right, John 4, right? You know, that those who worship him must worship in what? Spirit and in truth. And his word is truth. And over the years, you know what I found? That not only is my worship grounded and finds its foundation in Scripture, but that Scripture often propels, ignites, and sustains my worship. Like just yesterday morning, you know, I necessarily woke up in a bubbly mood, you know, happy mood with myself and the world. <laughs> and, and I was reading Colossians chapter 1, and I'm reading, like, he's talking about Jesus. And says, that, hey, Jesus is the, is the image of the invisible God, and how Jesus created all things, that he's over all things, he's before all things, he has supremacy in all things. And, and, then, and then, then Paul says that the same Jesus that is that big and that huge, that he's the fullness of God, that that same Jesus gave his blood on the cross to pay for my sins, and that because of Jesus, that, 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 that I now get to stand in God's presence, holy and blameless, without a single fault. Can you see it? Are you seized by it? If, if, that, if that's true, that's crazy, right? Like this God who created everything died for you? Like that's pretty, that's pretty crazy, right? If that's true, that's like blow your mind true, right? That, that's not like over pan tops, look at the mountains true, right? That's just like, are you stinking kidding me? And, and then he goes on to say, it's, it's even crazier. He says there's this mystery that's been hidden, but it's now been revealed, this crazy mystery. And he says, the mystery is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so this God who created everything, died for me, but not only did he die for me, he came to live inside of me, and he's my hope of glory. He's my hope of becoming everything I've ever dreamed of becoming. And I gotta tell you, after that, I was ready to take my walk around the lake, put on some worship music, and go praise God walking around. Because the scripture and the truth of scripture. Uh, uh, fourth, worship is best expressed in submitting. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down to worship him. And you know, bowing down is a sign that the one before you is greater than you. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. They ran to him and grasped his feet. The 24 elders fell down before him. And here's the deal. The, the wise men teach us that worship is made visible in our Submission, that worship is made visible in our submission. God, you're in charge, not me. God, your will, not mine. God, your perfect way, not my crooked way. God, your purpose, not my agenda. And we see their submission in the final words that Matthew writes about them. When it's time to leave, they return to their own country by another route. Even though they had already booked their hotels, right, on Expedia, right? It's like, oh, we already have our hotels booked for this route. And, and, and why did they take another route? Because God told them to take another route. And here's the deal. This, this is really important. I even got music backing me up. <laughs> worship that does not result in submission is not really worship. Let that sink in. Jesus said, quoting Isaiah, the people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And Jesus said, why do you call me Lord? 
Why do you sing songs? Why do you lift your hands? Why do you have t-shirts? Why do you have bumper stickers? Why do you have posters? And don't do what I say. See, every time you submit to God, every time you do what God asks you to do, every time you, you live how he calls you to live, it's an act of worship. And you don't need a song, you don't need a guitar, you don't need a hymn book to do it. Anytime you forgive someone who hurts you, that's worship. Every time you pray for your enemies, that's worship. Every time that you share your faith with someone who's lost, that's worship. Every time you reach out to the hurting, that's worship. Every time you overlook an offense, that's worship. It's an act of worship. And when we refuse to submit to God, it's an act of rebellion and defiance. And the picture is not of, of us bowing before God's, but uh, uh, bowing before God, but us turning our backs on God, which is the ultimate insult to a leader. Here's a picture uh, taken several uh, years ago. Uh, this is New York, a uh, bunch of police officers, and they're having a riff with the mayor uh, at the funeral of a, a fallen fellow fallen officer, and they felt the mayor was not very respectful and had their backs. And so while he was speaking, as a sign of of, 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 hey, we're, we're not with you right now, they turn their backs. And, and, and when, you, when you and I refuse to do what God says, we're going, not doing it. Don't respect you. Do it my way, not your way. Okay? That's not worship. Get it? Good. And worship the man's sacrifice. They opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I mean, these guys made a sacrifice, right? I mean, their, uh, their grand caravan didn't have heated seats. It didn't have air conditioning, right? You know, it, 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 it didn't have uh, DVD player, XM radio, satellite TV, you know. And, and they brought expensive gifts with them, which meant they thought ahead. They didn't just show up and go, oh, wow, we should have brought Jesus something. Wow, we spent, wow, that movie and dinner was a lot. This is all we got. You know, they, they brought gifts. They, they, they planned ahead. Ahead of time. See, worship always results in sacrifice. In fact, the very first time we find the word worship in the Bible, it's around sacrifice. You know where it is? It's in Genesis chapter 20. Very first, 22 rather. You know, the law of first usage and understanding the Bible. The first time worship is ever used in the Bible is when Abraham's about to sacrifice his son. Now, that's a pretty significant sacrifice. Um, obviously, God stopped him, but he didn't know that at the time. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we'll come back to you. Worship involves sacrifice. Um, Romans 12, 1 says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. You know, how many times do you sin a day? <laughs> I mean, how often do you need his mercy? How many times do you do the same thing you said you'd never do again? In view of his mercy... In view of his not treating you as your sins deserve, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Worship demands sacrifice. Now, as we begin wrapping this up, I want us to consider the three responses to Jesus we see in Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 12. Now, the response of the wise men obviously was worship. Seeing, seeking, scripturing, that's a new word. I mean, studying scripture. 
Uh, seeing, seeking, scripturing, submitting, and sacrificing. I needed an ING and I went with it, right? I got my own dictionary. Seeing, seeking, scripturing, submitting, and sacrificing. Cruel King Herod was one of hostility. I mean, the idea of Jesus drove him to murder and he would do anything he could to keep Jesus and his ways out of his life. Got to get rid of Jesus, all costs. Sponsoring religious leaders was apathy. I mean, I mean, they knew where Jesus was. The wise men travel a thousand miles across the desert and these guys wouldn't go down the block. Apathetic towards Jesus. What's your response to Jesus this morning? And you don't have to have a plan to murder people, right, to be hostile to Jesus. It just means you don't want Jesus in your life. It just means that you don't want Jesus in your life telling you how to live and telling you what to do. So I'm going to push him away. I don't want him in there. It's, by the way, that's the worst thing you could ever do because Jesus is the best gift ever. But you're like, hey, I don't want Jesus in my life. I don't want him telling me what to do. And I'll do anything I can to keep him far away. Maybe that's you today. I don't know. You know. Or maybe it's apathy. Maybe that's your response. Like, like you know, you've been, you've been in this church thing for a long time. And, 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 and you know about this you can have a personal relationship with God thing. You know it. And, and you even know where you're supposed to begin to find it. <laughs> that you can find it by, by reading God's word and, and by praying and by gathering with people who, who are seeking God. You know, you know it. You know it's there. You see other people having it, but you, you won't even go down the block. <laughs> you won't even open up the book to see it for yourself. And by the way, if either of those responses have been your response, they do not need to remain your response. You don't have to keep pushing Jesus away. By the way, you can't push hard enough. And you don't have to continue to be apathetic. You can have that relationship with God that changes everything. And maybe your response can be worship. Right? And worship is about seeing. Are you looking? It involves seeking. How hard are you chasing after him? It's grounded and ignited in scripture. Are you in the book? I'm just telling you, if Jesus were to become flesh, you cannot know Jesus unless you're reading your Bible. You can't know that much about him if you're not. I'm not trying to be mean or hateful. I'm just trying to be truthful to you. You can't know the word if you don't read the word. And the reason you're hungry and thirsty and you're stuck in Jerusalem, right, it's because you are not reading the word and getting direction. You're not hearing God's encouragement and seeing how much he loves you and cares for you. But worship expresses itself in submission. And, and maybe today you thought you came to worship God in song. God goes, no, I, I wanted you to worship me in submission. You know? and, and, and maybe there's something God has asked you to do, asked you to stop doing. And God said, hey, you want to really worship me? Do that. You know? We can sing later. He said, we can sing later. We can praise later. But right now, I would like you to worship me by simply submitting to me and doing that thing you've been pushing against and then worship the man's sacrifice. Seeing, seeking, scripturing, submitting, and surrendering. Psalm 95, verse 6 and 7. 
come. We have opportunity to do that. Like, like we're going to sing a song. And, and, and this usually means, hey, service is almost over. Well, I was longer, shorter than last time, you know. Or it can be like, wait a second. I've been apathetic towards Jesus. I've been hostile towards Jesus. You know, I mean, we can actually do this right now. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God. We are the people he watches over. The flock under his care. And what scary words right here. If only you would listen to his voice today. If only you would listen to his voice today. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to be in your presence. God, thank you for the wise men who teach us about worship. It's about seeing and seeking and scripturing and submitting and sacrificing. And God, I pray for everyone in this room because we're all responding right now. We're either responding in worship or responding in apathy. Yeah, I heard this before. There's some good games on today. Or we're hostile. I don't want to hear it because I want to live the way I want to live. I want to keep walking the path I'm walking. And Holy Spirit, I just pray that you help everyone see that there's nothing better than worshiping the King. There's nothing better than Jesus. That it's in Jesus alone that we find life and happiness and purpose and direction and salvation. Amen.